Well, it is a, a delight to be here, um, and to just want to uh, throw out that uh, we still have a few more of these uh, sessions, and I would, uh, you know, if you like what you hear, um, you know, that the jury's still out, obviously, uh, but if you like what you hear, we'd love to, uh, to have you continue with us. Um, I thought, uh, if I do say so myself, which I'm slightly biased, I thought last night was, uh, was very, uh, very blessed. Uh, the, the Ruach of God was here with us, not so much because of what I had to say, but uh, what John uh, has to say. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd love to, uh, to, to see you again. And uh, just as a preview, um, the, uh, the Nicodemus, the story of Nicodemus was, uh, was read. And uh, just a tease, I'm going to uh, give you an interpretation of Nicodemus that I guarantee you've never heard. <laughs> um, and, and so uh, I, I look forward to that. It's probably one of the most important um, uh, sessions, uh, biblical sessions that we'll have this weekend. And um, that's, that this, that's this evening. So if you have plans, uh, if you're interested, in, I don't know, uh, you know, what college games are on today, but, you know, uh, we have this amazing technology that can actually record that, and then you don't have to watch the commercials. So, um, yeah. So anyway, uh, food for thought. Um, well, la- last night, um, we, had a, we had a wonderful time getting our, our heads around um, the, the importance of witness, of testimony, in the Gospel of John, and to set up what we want to talk about today, I just need to sort of uh, make a, a couple of uh, review points, because perhaps many of you were not here last night, um, and, and the first thing, the first category I really, really want to underscore is this is not a lecture. Um, this is not VSS. This is not a classroom. This is an opportunity um, to be present together. Um, the word present, presence, is extremely important for the Gospel of John. Um, and so if we're going to uh, really get inside the Gospel of John, if we're going to read it from a messianic perspective, uh, we've got to, 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 to not hold this, this Gospel or each other from a distance. Uh, the Gospel in the end, or at the beginning in the end, is not about a set of, of beliefs or doctrines. Uh, all the Gospels, in that sense, uh, don't make propositions. It's not like, it's not like a, a theological text, systematic text, where you can, you know, what does the sovereignty of God mean? And you look in the index and you come and, you, you know, there it is, and it's a definition. Um, in fact, none of the Bible is like that, although I grew up in, in, the, uh, in the Gentile Christian uh, sort of uh, world, and we had these things called youth Bibles, and you know, you go back to the index, you know, if you're depressed, look at these verses, if you're, you know, you're lonely, look at these verses, if you want to break up with your girlfriend, look at these verses, uh, such and such, uh, but it, it, it unfortunately, as helpful as that is, I'm not sort of, you know, completely uh, uh, negating that, it's, it's, that's, you know, the, there's, there are different ways to to experience scripture, but um, it, it sets us up to think that the Bible is just an answer book to today's questions. And um, I've been kind of around the block with the Bible since I was like, yeah, 
two years old, one year old, one year old. I mean, I, I kind of didn't know anything other than. Uh, but in my, you know, kind of uh, later life here, as, as much as 47 you could call later, uh, is, has been dedicated uh, to being uh, in Scripture, to sort of being um, a person that is uh, saturated with Scripture. And I can, I can assure you that there are lots of questions uh, you won't find an answer to in the Bible. It doesn't mean that there aren't things that the Bible teaches that would, would help you deduce how to, how to live a life. But this is just a side. You don't have to pay for this. Uh, but the Bible is, is mostly a text that directs us to a life that's, that's guided by wisdom rather than foolishness. A lot of people think the Bible is like, a, you know, people who don't know the Bible say, well, the Bible is kind of a, a list of do's and don'ts. Um, uh, it's as if uh, even the Torah was just, you know, like a legislation of various case studies. Or, um, but even you, we all know that the Torah is as much narrative as it is sort of, um, you know, legal material. Um, and and, and in, in that sense, you, you actually see when you read the Proverbs, uh, you, you kind of have a, have a key to understanding really the whole of Scripture, which is uh, not so much a, a, a question of what's right and what's wrong, although, please hear me, I'm not saying it doesn't have a morality like that, but really what it is, and I think this is so much more invitational, which I think Scripture is. In fact, Torah doesn't mean law at its essence, it means instruction. It means teaching. So the reason we put law very prominently is because when the Greek translators of the, of the Hebrew um, in the, you know, let's say the 2nd century B.C., 2nd century uh, um, uh, C.E., as, as uh, some likes to, like to refer, uh, the only word in Greek that they thought would represent Torah was namas, which means law. And, okay, just get me. I'm gonna. I, I, what's amazing about this? What what really boggles the mind is is uh, how by putting one word that's in in Hebrew and tr- and moving that into Greek, it actually fundamentally changes the nuances of what the Hebrew is communicating. And that's not insignificant for this point. And that is because Torah is an invitation to live wisely, uh, to live in covenant relationship with and, and in relationship with the God of Israel and Israel. Um, and and there, are, there are portions of Torah that are very, um, you, you might say legalistic, not in the negative sense, but, but particularly around the priesthood. There's certain things you do and you don't do, and if you do them, you might die. And, and so, but, but on the whole, we sometimes get... Um, you know, sideways when we sort of think that that's actually the, 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 the entirety of the Torah um, or the Tanakh or the New Testament. So what, what I'm wanting to frame here, I guess, as we come into this is that, that uh, what Scripture is inviting us to is how do we live wisely? And at the heart of that, for, the, for Scripture, it has to be connected to the presence of God. See, I'm coming back, okay? Coming back. Um, presence, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, and, and so just to kind of move another step forward, when we come to John, more than the other three Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
the invitation to John is not to believe something. John is not trying to convince you to, to, to sort of uh, logically deduce the person of Yeshua. Matthew, on the other hand, is doing that. If you ever have read Matthew, you know that he's, he's constantly trying to demonstrate that Yeshua is the one that the, the Tanakh pointed to. So you'll have all these quotations, particularly in the early chapters where the, uh, uh, the author, Matthew, will say, as Isaiah had prophesied. And sometimes it's even a little confusing because uh, there's this... Um, uh, you know, uh, sort of prophetic fulfillment of um, a virgin will conceive, Isaiah 7.14. And, and, you know, it, when you look at that in, in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew it's, it's not a, a virgin as we would understand it. It's, it's more of a, a young woman. And, and so uh, there, there is a sense in which all of the Tanakh points to Yeshua. And so for Matthew, it's demonstrating that. And how many times you can demonstrate that? So that if you're a Jewish uh, person in the first century, you would be convinced by the amount of argument that Matthew is, is, uh, is piling on. Um, and that must have been effective because that's, that's, what's, you know, that's what's a legacy given to Matthew. And of course, Matthew is, is uh, touted as one of the, you know, perhaps the most Jewish gospel of the four. There's reasons that I won't, get, I won't get into that, but what I will say to you is if, if you consider John, you look at it carefully, um, and, you, and, you, and you have some um, depth of understanding knowledge of, of Jewish tradition, particularly uh, early Jewish tradition, of course, because Jewish tradition today uh, obviously has organic links to, to the first century, but much has, has uh, developed since then. But if you, if you think about what early Judaism, how it presented itself, what it thought, uh, what you would begin to sort of see is, wow, John's gospel is so thoroughly Jewish that if you were to, to, to perceive its Jewishness, you would have to be on the inside. Because the author of John was such a literary master he was able to, to weave a narrative together that has so many layers of uh, insight. I mentioned this last night, but John's the book that's, that people say it's, it's, it's graspable by a child and it baffles scholars. I mean, what other text can be grasped by a, a child's naive creative mind while at the same time just make the best scholars you know, pull out their hair to try, to try to piece it together. It has this complexity and this depth. Um, and, and I can actually attest to both sides because uh, having grown up in the, in the Gentile church, John's gospel was sort of a, 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 like a, like a just like a, 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 a sustenance of lives, like bread. And uh, I mentioned this last night, but the first verse I, I really connected to is the verse that you see on posters, you know, at, the, at uh, football games, you know, John 3.16. Except mine, in the tradition I grew up in, it, was, it had to be the King James Bible because um, there wasn't any other Bible Paul used. So the... <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, appreciate that laugh because, you know, that doesn't always, you know, hit so well. So, um, <laughs> but... Uh, but, but that was such a 
fundamental, fundamental basis for, for why I followed Yeshua. As, as a small child. I mean, I grasped it. And now as a, as a biblical scholar, who by the way doesn't wear that uh, title too, too comfortably, you can call me Joel, uh, please. Um, I, I have come to, to understand that this, this, there is, this is a piece of art. It is not a, like, a, like an Ikea manual. Um, this is, this is a, a piece of music. It's, it's, it's lyric and rhythm. It's, it's you two in the first century. Quick, there's three things that I love. Yankees, baseball, you two, and a German named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. There's a lot of other things I love too, like my family. But, uh, but outside of that, uh, oh, and the Bible, and, uh, and the Holy Land, and, uh, but... Um, but, but if you ever come to, my, to North Park and you see my office, you'll know uh, what I love. It's all there. But um, uh, any, anyhow, but I, I think the point I want to make is when we come into John's gospel, if we take the right footing, we will, not, we will have the right expectations. And the expectations in coming to John is that it is not so much going to convince us through, through logic. It's not actually directed to hear like some other texts. It's directed here. Um, and I've come, as I've gotten older, I've realized that the, the power of art in, in the life of a disciple of Yeshua is that it surprises us. Um, when we are saturated in Scripture, that's a prerequisite, when we connect to a piece of art and it comes to us through the frame of our Scripture-saturated mind, it, it, it has the tendency to, to be unexpected, and so it comes into us before we can catch it. Um, and I think this is so important because I, I have devoted much of my life as a, as a follower of Yeshua to acquiring, to grasping at, at uh, deeper levels of discipleship. And, and I, I'm not begrudging that, and certainly that is, is all of part of what I'm about to say. But as the, the older I get, the more I find that the most formative moments, might be an overstatement, but tend to be those that surprise me, not because, okay, don't think I'm, I'm, I'm being unbiblical here, but not so much because I, I, I was necessarily having my devotions in the morning, although I, I do have that. But when I'm, when I'm not paying attention, when I don't have my focus, it surprises me from just odd directions, whether it's a song, whether it's a piece of artwork. And so um, I, I want to invite us to John as a, as a piece of art and have the expectations you would of a, of a, of a lyric or a painting that, that upon first reflection, there's something. But then after second, third, fourth, fifth, in fact, in, to infinity, there are depths of perception, of insight uh, that can be gained in a way that, say, studying a, a text based on rational arguments just cannot deliver. It's just why metaphor is a much better medium of, of communication of what matters most than, you know, prose propositions um, and and uh, if you're not a, a if you don't know or a fan of metaphor um, you know uh, I just invite you to sort of think about uh, about gospel of John 
as rooted in history, John is definitely presenting the historical figure of Jesus, is, is interested in the fact that this human being, Yeshua of Nazareth, shares the identity of Israel, Israel's God. But in fact, that makes the most difference as it's embodied in history. But if I can sort of pull that in story, in story, because what is history? What is our history if not story? And so when we come to understand st- stuff about Yeshua uh, in the Gospels in general, but, but in, in John in particular, it is not an invitation to sort of know things. Um, the Gospel of John's first chapter invites us to, to, to come to the, to the, uh, to the awareness that, that what matters is being present with Jesus. And so we, last night we looked at this come and see. In the, I hope you have your, your Bibles with you. And uh, if you do, could you pull them out? And if you don't, maybe just situate yourself a bit closer than you would to a neighbor. I mean, you know, can't, uh, you know, uh, can't get too close. But um, if you could get close enough so you can see the text, I think that would be, would be helpful. And I apologize I don't have slides. But, you know, part of why I don't have slides has to do with this point. I don't want you to be focusing on that. And I don't want to be like, and this is, I want to be present with you as you are with me. Otherwise, we'd be as completely, um, you know, disregarding the whole point of it all uh, with respect to John. But just, just very briefly, because we spent quite a bit of time, but, but where I want to go this morning uh, is, is very dependent on this. Um, uh, the, it's a story about the disciples coming to Jesus. It's verse um, 38. Uh, the two disciples, doesn't matter at this point to de- identify them or, all, or any of that, but Jesus turns around and says, what do you want? What are you looking for? Very, a very um, piercing question. And, and they ask Jesus, where are you staying? And Jesus' um, answer isn't information. It's Invitation. The difference between invitation and information, and in case you're not really paying attention, which everybody is, I can tell, I can see you, uh, is a significantly different thing. Just consider, <laughs> uh, not to be stereotypical, but consider uh, if we are married, uh, the relationship between uh, sort of uh, the husband and the wife. Uh, the, <laughs> the husband is informational. Typically, the wife is invitational. So uh, when she which at least in my marriage, I can't speak for your marriage, so I should be a little, a bit more, um, uh, you know, chaste in that. But in my marriage, I can only speak about mine. When, when, when my wife Carla begins to tell me something about a struggle she's having, uh, my first inclination is to give her information about how she can fix that because I'm a fixer. That's just, you know, that there's a bit of stereotype. Or, or cultural part of that that doesn't have to be gender um, necessarily, but uh, at least for me, you know, I always sort of miss the mark by, you know, you know, as many times as she'll tell me, I seem to always fall in the ditch. After 25 years, I still can't, like, I don't have the intuition. Man, it would be so much easier. It would be so much easier if I just would learn my lesson. But she's inviting me to something. She's inviting me to be with her in that, not to solve it for her. Um, and and uh, in a way, that's a great uh, analogy because uh, in John, discipleship, uh, following after Yeshua, is not um, 
It's not information. It's an invitation to be with Jesus. Um, and, and so when we think about how, how John conceives of what it means to be a, a follower of Yeshua, um, a person who's, who's uh, uh, devoted and, and who is loyal and who is, who is uh, finding life in, in Yeshua Messiah, it is only and exclusively and, and without ex- exception a relational dynamic. And even when John says, uses the word truth, for John, truth is not a thing, it's a person. So when you, when you know the truth, it's not content. It's not a, it's not a confession of faith. And I'm, not, I'm saying that's great, okay, on the one hand. But if we don't get to the essence of it as John understands it, a confession of faith is really meaningless. So what we need to sort of imagine then is this gospel that is, is so artistic um, and, and, and not, a re, not a text that's, that's aiming at our rationality. It's wanting us to, to, imbo- to, to come into the story and to, and to identify ourselves with various characters who, in one way or another, relate to Jesus. And so today, we're going to look at a character uh, whose name we do not know. We just know his station in life, a man born blind. Uh, tonight, we're going to consider another character on, on, basically on the same principle, but rather than being a marginalized, socially excluded person, it's going to be one of the high aristocratic, religious, and political, by the way. Pharisees are not religious in a sense that somehow that's disconnected from a political uh, role. So Nicodemus is, is both um, scholar and politician. Um, and, and so we're going to see the differences between how these two individuals are in Yeshua's presence and what their, what their presence with Yeshua means about their faith. Because for the Gospel of John, how you know what you should think about a person's relationship to Yeshua has everything to do with their way of being in the story. Um, let me set up two more categories before we look at uh, John chapter 9. The first category is to remind ourselves, I, I gave a different point last night, but so this is just kind of a, context, a contextual thing, uh, that, uh, that one would need to know before we could get into the text. We're interested in the text, but the text is situated. So this is really significant for us in this community. So, so dial it in right now, because what I want to say is rather provocative uh, but it will not be necessarily provocative to you. And, and here's the provocative statement. Gentiles do not appear significantly in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John largely ignores the Gentile world. It is, it is, um, it's not that it, it dismisses it. In fact, the Gospel of John is, is, is fundamentally... Um, a foundation of, 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 the, uh, of the gospel of Yeshua to the Gentiles. 
So I'm not saying that it's, it's somehow like the Qumran community, which is, you know, not only doesn't mention the Gentiles much, but it kind of gives a, a judgment and basically it's, you know, they're damned. Um, John is not like that. John's sort of interest lies elsewhere and that is fundamentally important. And it's not something that you would hear said in, in any Gentile context. Um, whether it's scholarly or otherwise. And I'd love to have time to unpack this because it's really super interesting. It really is. You might not think so, but I would be so excitedly interested, you would be interested too. <laughs> See, this is how I deal with my undergrads because they don't care anything about this stuff. But they are like curious. Just why, why is this guy so animated about, you know, uh, Sabbath law? Uh, or in this case, the, 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 the ethnic center of, of, of the gospel. So just, just to put it to two implications. One is where a Gentile is, is, uh, is present in the story in, in John. They, they, their function is always to um, uh, bring to light the, the, uh, the, um, the exploitation by certain elements of Jewish temple leadership uh, that, that, are, that are obstacles uh, to um, the, the mission of Jesus. So for example, great, great one, and perhaps the most powerful one, Pilate in the, in the uh, trials of Jesus. You know, John, <laughs> John pulls this story together whereby the Jewish leaders, not all, in fact, most, this, this is not most Jews, this is the Jewish leaders that are sort of the aristocrats of the temple. John paints a picture where the Roman governor, the Roman presence in, in Jerusalem is advocating for Yeshua as king. And, and those who should be advocating for Yeshua to be king are saying he's no king. In fact, in fact, Caesar is our only king. We have no king, but see, I mean, talk about sort of a rhetorical reversal. And and you know that's again, I'm just now I'm just sort of waxing eloquently here. But but because I'm, I, I, but I need to, I, this. Just is so important. It, scripture is so often treated again. Such with such uh, a lack of, of literary, poetic, rhetorical sense. sense. I mean, I mean, John is brilliantly um, and and almost um, sarcastically um, critiquing the leadership of Israel at the time um, as being the false shepherds of Ezekiel. The, the leaders who, who rather than being the good shepherd, John chapter 10, are exploiting the sheep. And Ezekiel tells us beautifully that one day the God of Israel is going to remove those shepherds and he is going to replace those with a Davidic shepherd who will, once Israel is, is restored to its, its place, this new David will will shepherd them with, with care and with um, generosity and with, with, uh, with the kind of attunement that one would expect of a shepherd. 
So, so this is the context to say that um, Gentiles, their function almost exclusively is to provide that kind of contrast. And so the second implication is that the story of Yeshua is one in which Israel and its promises and its hopes and the implications of the presence of Messiah, um, how that matters to early Jews in the Roman diaspora. Um, Jews in the first century in the diaspora uh, largely were a very marginalized group. Um, Out of Eretz Israel, uh, there was little security. And so um, here's this gospel that's, that's so thoroughly Jewish, but written in Greek, promoted in the, in the, in the sort of the, the, the parts of the Roman Empire that did not have a Semitic, a Semitic background, didn't speak Aramaic. Um, and and the, the, the purpose of the gospel was to, was to confirm and to, and to, and to sort of uh, establish more, more firmly and deeply that the, that the, uh, the person that they have pronounced their loyalty to, namely Yeshua, and the, and the consequential sort of uh, persecution, um, either directly or indirectly, uh, the suffering at the very least is worth it. Uh, that even though the majority of the diaspora communities in which they live think they're completely... Uh, off the rails, John's gospel says to them, here is who Yeshua is. Here is what he has done. Here is what he is doing. Hold on. Hold on. Do not, do not throw in the towel. Do not go back. Not to a different tradition. Don't go back to a tradition within Judaism that's not messianic. Anyway. Why that's important then is because when we talk about these characters, and this is why I needed to introduce this, when we talk about the man born blind, the sighted man, we're talking about how his story, which connects to the presence of of Messiah, not to content, but what it has to do with Israel's redemption, Israel's restoration. It is in in that sense both both universal, but through particularity. It's, the, it's that sort of difficult subtlety that, that so many people are, ha, have a hard time getting their minds around that the universality of, of uh, Yeshua's work is through the particularity of first century uh, Jewish believers in Jesus and the, the, uh, the community that although at times in history uh, was nearly imperceptible, yet somehow was preserved. Um, which, if you're interested, David Rudolph has a great introduction to that in the Introduction to Mosaic Judaism. And I'll sign your copy if you get one. Um, but, but appreciating that when we talk about the blind man, just a minute, and we talk about Nicodemus tonight, we're talking about how Yeshua impacts Jewish people in their social location. Okay, so uh, 
We're going to transition. We're actually going to get into the Bible because that's why we're here. Um, we, we need to sort of then move into John 9. And as we move into John 9, so if you have that or if you're sitting next to somebody, um, we need to sort of situate this story by, by catching ourselves up with, with not these categories at, a, at an abstract level, but with the, the narrative itself. Um, and so uh, Yeshua in these sort of first 10 chapters, uh, which, is, which is witnessed mostly by this, this figure, uh, John the Immerser, John the Baptist, um, his, his role here is public. He's, he's demonstrating the kingdom. He's, he's, he's validating the kingdom through teaching and through, uh, through miraculous deeds as signs. Um, this, be, this is one of them, this, this miraculous healing. Um, what, he, what is being produced out of the teaching of Jesus and the, and the and the, uh, and the works of Yeshua in terms of power is that uh, God is creating believers, creating those who believe. And, and what I mean by that is it does, it does not mean He's, he's creating uh, people who believe things. Again, um, belief in John is, is actually a powerful thing. The word believe can be either a noun or a, a verb. Sorry, um, It's either faith or belief or to believe. Um, and, and that's not insignificant because when, when, when the Gospel of John talks about faith, it's always a verb. Um, faith in the Gospel of John is never a noun. It's never a statement. It's never a, a piece of content. It's always action. What is Yeshua and Israel's God doing through Yeshua? It's, it's drawing the, 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 uh, the uh, nucleus of a new Israel. A renewed Israel. Not a new Israel, but a renewed Israel. A nucleus out of which the whole will come. But it's not by, by, by a, again, an acquisition of content. It is through the way of being in the world. What does faith then mean in, in the Gospel of John? It is not a thing. It is a demonstration, a way of being in the world that is, is entrustment to God. Entrustment to God. Entrusting oneself to God. So when we come then to John 9... And we, we're going to talk about this, this, this genuine disciple as one who, who uh, comes to believe in Jesus. You'll notice in this, in this, in this beautifully told and very uh, humorous, ironically humorous story, uh, that what is being revealed in the change within this person is not an illumination of mind. It's an illumination of life. So what then is a genuine disciple? What does a genuine disciple according to John look like? Well, he doesn't give us a definition. He tells us a story. So if you look at John 9, it's kind of a long chapter. Uh, John likes rather long chapters. Uh, but, but we can break this down into basically five scenes. Five scenes. 
And, and some of the scenes we're going to dip into, others we're going to just linger for, for a few minutes. Um, but we need to see the, the sequential developmental nature of these scenes. One after another, after another, after another. And if we don't appreciate the way one builds on the other, we'll miss the whole point. So let me just kind of sketch this. The, the first scene is, 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 is verses 1 through 12. And this is kind of the setup. This is where uh, we, we discover the characters in this story. We, we are presented with what is going to be the conflict. Uh, we're, 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 we're given the information we need to know who the players are. This is the setup. And, and what is, uh, there's a lot of interesting things in this passage, not least the question of, of the, the relationship between, uh, say, blindness and, and, and sin or, or God's, uh, God's providence. Um, this, is, this is not going to be something we take very far, but it, it is interesting enough to say it because it contrasts another story of healing in chapter 5. Chapter 5 tells us about a paralytic that's healed. This is a blind man that's healed. And just so you know, that isn't, uh, that isn't coincidental. John is inviting us to read them in relationship to one another. And, and, and what, what John 9 teaches in a different sort of tone than John 5 is that, is that uh, sort of uh, the consequences of being human in the kind of world we live in um, uh, sometimes are the result of our own disobedience or transgression. But in the, on the other hand, the, the stations that we find ourselves in life uh, are also gifts that God gives. And there's a mystery there. Uh, you can't sort of, and people love to do this sometimes, it's like, well, you're sick, you know, you must, you know, confess your sin, and, and you know, it's, 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 uh, it's always sort of a, a sin thing, and this is just the way God's trying to wake you up. And you're like, well, that's not very kind. <laughs> I thought Romans 2.4 said it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, not the, like, the, you know, the, the, uh, the plague of God that leads to repentance. Um, and, and, uh, and so I think there is a mystery to, uh, to our humanity, whether it's uh, a problem or a gift. And I think that's a very intriguing aspect that we can't unpack, but I think it's something worth saying because we all experience that tension. And those tensions, those binds, we shouldn't solve them. Well, they're un- insolvable anyway, except a few people know exactly how all of it fits together and, and they're very brilliant. But I think a bind like that invites us not to try to solve it, but to, but to enter into it, uh, to, to sort of be in that place of the bind to, to discover deeper truth, presence. So, so that is just, I mean, super, I, I, I'm, I'm ADHD, so I cannot, I cannot not mention that. But, uh, but the, the thing I want you to, to really appreciate in this setup is that while Jesus, Yeshua, gets the ball rolling, Yeshua sort of steps out of the limelight. This is really, really powerful. Because most of the, of the rest of the Gospel of John, Yeshua is the, is the centerpiece. Okay? But what happens here is Yeshua gets the ball rolling and then he just kind of comes back like this and just watches the thing un, 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 unroll, uh, unfold. And, and I almost, when you get in the story, it's almost like Jesus standing back there with a big smile on his face because he knows where this is going. 
And, and he knows that it's going to unfold in, in, in quite humorous ways. Um, and so, you know, I love that play, playful Yeshua. Uh, and I don't think I'm making it up, okay? I don't think I'm just like, hey, I want to have a playful Yeshua. Um, he, he backs out of the scene, at least the way John presents the story. He's the only one that tells the story. And, and so the focus of this story, the, the, sort of the protagonist, surprisingly, is not Yeshua. It's this man. So good. So good. Because he will become the witness to Yeshua. And since witness is the, essentially the, the key sort of theme of the book, bearing witness to Jesus, here he is, and he becomes what he doesn't ever think he he never envisions, he never imagines it, but he becomes this powerfully public, demonstratively embodied loyalist to Yeshua. And, and what's so uh, just powerful is the reason sequence is important because it unfolds in very uh, deliberate ways from step one to step two to step three to step four with the last scene being, being a, a confession of this Sighted man about Jesus' identity as the Lord. Yeshua shares the, the identity of, of Israel's God in some way, in some mysterious way. Um, and Yeshua present, pronounces a judgment on those who, though see, are blind. So, this, so, so these, these bookends, scene one and scene five, we have the setup, and then we have the climax of the confession and judgment. But, but, but scenes two, three, and four are where the, the transformation takes place um, because the, the restoration of sight physically is not actually what is important in the story. It is, it is mere metaphor. Okay, he received his sight. Fine. He received his sight in a pool called Siloam, which you can go and visit when you go to Israel. Um, the real one, they, they, that has been discovered just in the last um, couple of decades. They, there was this traditional one, everybody thought it was, um, but in any case, that's a, that's a travel uh, advisory thing, so I won't stay there. Um, but, uh, but, but what, we, what we're invited to see is sight for this story is about the revelation of who Jesus, who Yeshua is, and the way in which that invites a first century Jew, to a place of embrace, perhaps even un, almost unknowingly, and then a willingness to take whatever is then the result, whatever is the consequence. Um, and that, that's where this story gets quite, quite uh, ironically funny. So what happens then, uh, everybody that's in, in around who knows this, this man who was born blind, is, is sort of like, what? You know, this, is this the same you know, man that, that, that used to sit here? And, and so they, they get him and they take him to the, to the, the, the Pharisees. And, and uh, this is the, the, the scene then uh, in, uh, in 13 through 17. Let's just uh, dump, drop into this for a second. So they, they brought the man to the Pharisees um, who had been born blind. Now, on the day in which Jesus had made the, Yeshua had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. <laughs> he hasn't mentioned that until now. And you hear the music. Dun, dun, dun. That's what makes this story so much more provocative and 
There are reasons for that in terms of the, the practice of the Sabbath in, uh, in early Judaism. But this is what makes for the, the, the conflict, the, 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 the edge of it. Therefore, the Pharisees also, verse 15, asked him how he had received his sight. The man said, he put mud on my eyes and washed, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how could a sinner perform these signs? So they were divided. They were divided. <laughs> Jesus always divides. Yeshua always divides, and not least in the social location of Judaism. Yeshua divides always, always, in every social location, but certainly, perhaps, most evident in a Jewish context. Then they turned again to the blind man. It's funny, they were talking about him and he's right there. You know, have you ever been in a conversation all of a sudden you're like, why are we talking about you in the third person? You're right here. This happened to me the other day. Um, just, it's kind of funny to wake up to that and it's like, oh, well, um, this seems to be del- more deliberate. They turned then to the man and said, what do you have to say about him? You know, we, we are divided and uh, it was your eyes he opened after all. And, uh, and they asked him, is he a prophet? And they still did not believe action that he had been blind and received his sight until they met his parents. Um, here comes the next scene, which is, again, ra- this is where it gets humorous. Um, the blind man in that sort of famous uh, statement that we didn't read is, I once was blind and now I see. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know who this man is but I have experienced presence. I can't tell you who he is. I cannot tell you any information, but I know what I know. And you can't take that away from me. Um, So they bring his parents. Like, okay, we don't know if this guy was blind or not. We don't believe him, so let's get the parents involved. That's always a good idea. And and, and maybe these parents are typical or atypical. You can decide. Um, But they ask him, uh, they ask them, is this the one, um, um, well, where's the, okay, is this your son? Verse, verse 19, uh, they asked, is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can see? <laughs> and they say, we know he is our son, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. You ask him, he's of age. The parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who had acknowledged that Yeshua was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Thanks, mom and dad. Thanks for sort of caring about yourself more than me, you know? It's like, I mean, that's funny. I mean, that's funny. Uh, Again, you can decide if that's pretty typical, uh, um, depending on the moment, depending on the day, uh, as, as I'm a parent of 11-year-olds. Um, but, uh, but then they turn back to him, and this is where the uh, second time they say, so they interview him. So they turn now to this next scene, and they're interviewing him again. They interview him first. It's like, we're not getting anywhere. They interview the parents, still not getting anywhere. So they're like, okay, now we're really mad. Let's figure this out. Give glory to God, verse 24. Tell the truth. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, this one thing I do know, here's the word, I was blind, but now I see. 
Can't tell you anything else, but I can tell you that. And then this gets super, super funny. He, he answered, I have told you already. Did you not listen? He's talking to like the religious leaders, political religious leaders. And then this is awesome. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Now, sit with that for a second. What, at what point did this man become a disciple of Yeshua? Can you, can you point it out in the text? At what point did this man cross the line, as some people like to say? Where did he pray the prayer? Where did he nail his, his, his uh, confession on the wooden cross? Uh, where? Somewhere in that process of, of being interrogated, of having to wrestle, of having his, his parents sort of leave him high and dry because of their own fear, he comes to his loyalty to Yeshua. It, it almost seems imperceptible, but nevertheless real because he was blind and now he sees. So he comes to a point. This is kind of like the, 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 like the, the most powerful element of this. He's saying, why are you asking me again? Do you want to become his disciples like I am a disciple? Where and when did he become a disciple? Um, and what is the nature then of his discipleship? How would we describe how this person is a disciple? What is the, the, the uh, earmarks of discipleship that for John, this story becomes a pattern? How is this story a pattern for what it means to be a disciple? When there's no clear you know, evangelistic uh, invitation and then a packet of information that you get at the end that has a pen. When I was a kid, I always wanted the pen. But I was never, a, you know, I, I, I never not believed because I grew up in, in the Gentile church. So like one day I just went up there and got a pen because it had my church name on it and it was like, it was really cool. I wanted a pen. They only give pens to people who have really bad stories and like repent and come to Jesus, you know, in that Gentile world. But anyway, I need to get done here, okay? So I'm having a really good time and I apologize to holding you hostage. Um, but um, this is really what what's, this whole thing is about. Jewish context, which I described, the, the presence of what it means to be a disciple. And now we're, we're, we have our fingers on how John understands a genuine disciple. So from the story, how would you frame it? How would you put language to it, propositions to what is a narrative? What is narrative? I won't put you on the spot. But as far as I read it, what John defines as a genuine disciple is one who publicly, demonstratively embodied, demonstrates loyalty to Yeshua in the context of suffering for that demonstration and that confession. What marks out for John who and what is the profile of a genuine disciple? It is one who, in this case, is a, is a Jewish man who, in some mysteriously undefined way, comes to acknowledge that Yeshua is worth following and so certain of that, that that he is willing to state it publicly and to put himself and his reputation and his, his dignity on the line. For Jesus, for Yeshua. Remember, Yeshua's standing back here, right? He's watching the whole thing. It's like, 
Yes, yes, yes. A genuine disciple is one in this context who is Jewish, who comes in some mysterious, undefined way to a realization that Yeshua of Nazareth is Messiah. But doesn't it doesn't stop there. It's not just here. It's not up here at all. It's a believing into a space publicly with his whole body. And he becomes vulnerable, willingly vulnerable, almost humorously, I, like willing to, like playing, sarcastically vulnerable. Not like, uh, but like, yeah, let me roll the dice. There's a playfulness to it, but he's willing to bear whatever the consequences are. And for him, it's exclusion from his community. And I know, not because I know, but because I've, I've had lots of conversations that that's it's a little close to home. Um, it's kind of right, right, right at the nerve of some of the, uh, the, the, the commitment that those in this community have had to live out, not in a noun, but in a verb, a way of being. And, and so in the reward for this, the, the sort of the, the cherry on top, he's a disciple already. But when Jesus then in the final scene comes up to him and, uh, and says to him, do you know who the Son of Man is? Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man in verse 36 says, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I can believe. And Jesus says in verse 37, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you now. And the man offers the, the confession that is the sort of the, the point of it all. John's Gospel. What does it say? Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. He prostrated himself before the one he named Lord. Um, it was the confirmation of what had happened in, in, a, in a way that was not, um, was not process-oriented. Um, and, and then Jesus turns that around on the, on the Pharisees because they're like, oh, what about us? He says, those who think they have sight are blind and those who are blind are the ones who have sight. So, um, genuine disciple for John exposes the false counterfeit disciple. And that's what we're going to talk about this evening. Because uh, the blind man is our paradigm for genuineness. And we're going to see Nicodemus is the paradigm for unbelief, for a lack of living out um, a loyalty to Jesus. Can I say a word of prayer? And uh, I just thank you for holding on with me about that. I, I uh, Hey, I was invited, so I was going to make sure everyone got their money's worth. Um, and and I, I feel in a place that, uh, that values, uh, that can stick around just a bit more to, to make uh, actually something worth, worth hearing. Um, God of Israel, Son, Yeshua, Messiah, Ruach, Spirit, of Yeshua and the Father. We, we uh, ask with humility but with great um, passion that uh, you would speak to us. You would um, reveal our hearts to us. Yeshua, are we a genuine follower of you? Or are we just being counterfeit? Because we have yet to step out publicly to name particularly and to embody willfully with the knowledge of the consequence that will surely come. For John and for then you, Yeshua, 
Nothing less, nothing less is genuine faith. So as the man in Mark who said, I believe, help my unbelief. I pray in your kindness, Yeshua. You wouldn't condemn us. You wouldn't, you wouldn't uh, bring with this sermon contempt. But in kindness, will you give us imagination for the blessing of being able to hail you as Lord and the power that that will, and the satisfaction and the joy in the midst of suffering that that realization, that act of worship will bring as we are reunited and restored and preparing for your return to make all things new. Amen.